0: Scripture, but it might help you if you have your Bible to turn to this passage of Scripture. It's really one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. I was amazed the other day when one of our sons asked permission to go to Charlotte to hear, I believe it was Charlotte or Greenville or somewhere, to hear a singing group called the second chapter of Acts. (laughs) I never heard of that, but uh, apparently it was a good singing group, and we're going to read a part of the second chapter of Acts. Let's begin with verse 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent, rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it? that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my Spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, And your old men shall dream dreams, even upon my bond slaves, both men and women. I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth beneath, and blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God per- performed through him and in your midst, Just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Amen. May God bless to our understanding. Uh, this reading from his word. Seven years ago in 1973, on Pentecost Sunday, Dr. L. Nelson Bell, a ruling elder of this church, was making his address as the retiring moderator of the Presbyterian Church in the United States at the meeting of the General Assembly in Fort Worth, Texas. It was a great address that he made. He made an address calling the attention of the church back to the message which we should be preaching and teaching. I want to cite in the beginning of this sermon today what he said on that occasion. On the birthday of the church, the anniversary celebrating the coming of the Holy Spirit, Dr. Bell, with great unction, quoted the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. Quote, And in these last days, God declares, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Here we have sons and daughters of our church, Dr. Bell remarked, precious young people who know and love the Lord, and some of us qualify as being old. I am told that I am the oldest man ever to have served as moderator, and I have a dream. An old man's dream of a transformed and revitalized church. A church which will once more emphasize those things of eternal import which were central at that first Pentecost. Now, what was preached at that first Pentecost? Let me begin by saying this, that in the church we have great festivals which are good to mark, I think, Advent, of course, tells us of the coming of the Son of God, the Messiah's birth. That's Christmas. Good Friday tells us of the sacrifice that he made to atone for our sins as the Paschal Lamb of God upon the cross. Easter tells us of his great and powerful resurrection from the dead. Ascension tells us that he has ascended to the right hand of God where he reigns. Pentecost tells us of the fulfillment of the promise which he received from the Father to give the Holy Spirit, to baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Holy Spirit created for him a body when he was born into this world, the Lord Jesus. And the Holy Spirit created His body, which is the church of which we are a part. And it's the grossest heresy not to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are commanded to be. And so on this first Pentecost Sunday, let us look at what... By the way, Pentecost simply means fifty. The the festival of weeks, fifty days after Passover. Passover, of course, uh, fifty days following the Exodus of the uh, children of Israel out of their bondage. Uh, then they went through their wilderness journey, and then fifty days later, uh, the coming of the Law comes to bring some semblance of order, uh, and is given them, and Pentecost is a uh, a celebration of not only the giving of the law but the giving of the first fruits to the Lord uh, the first fruits of the festival that are there and so on that day uh, they had waited in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit came upon them let me just go to some of the verses and let me say that I wish to rely heavily upon material which I received last summer in one of the greatest courses I ever had in my life in getting to hear John Stott uh, the distinguished Cambridge scholar and preacher uh, out in Vancouver at Regent College when he taught us uh, the book of Acts suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind the sound of a mighty rushing wind there was something audible Something that they heard. Something that would attract attention. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. We do not know the house where they were sitting. Perhaps it was the upper room. There appeared to them tongues as of fire. Now, of course, some of these things defy verbal description. Tongues as of fire difficult for our imagination. There was something that could be heard... And something that could be seen, the sound was there as of a mighty rushing wind. And wind in the scripture is synonymous with power. If you remember the great theophany, the manifestation, the power of God that came to Elijah on Mount Horeb. You remember that he heard that violent wind come that loosened great boulders from their sockets and cast them down into the ravines and the canyons. And he had to put his mantle across his face. And then the scorching fire came. The wind and the fire. The wind denotes power. We need, uh, today in our energy crisis, people are seeking to harness the wind. I've been amazed at that huge windmill that they put up over at Boone to try to... Of find some way of of harnessing the wind for power. Uh, then the wind signifies power, and it's also mysterious. It moves in a mysterious way. We can't see the wind, but we can see the effects of the wind. No artist and no photographer can catch a picture of the wind, but you can see its effects, and so. There is the sound like a rushing mighty wind that fills the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appears this which they can see with their eyes, the tongues as of fire. And fire denotes cleansing. Do you remember when Isaiah went into the temple? When Isaiah's king had died, when King Uzziah died, and Isaiah's whole world had fallen to pieces. And that deboneered, happy young prophet suddenly is crushed by the devastating news that his king is dead. And dead of a loathsome disease at that. And he goes forlorn into the temple. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Many of us, when we are crushed, go to the Lord. And Isaiah did. And you remember that When the vision of the Lord came to him and the place was shaken with that demonstration of power, he felt his own unworthiness and cried out to the Lord that he did feel that unworthiness. And there was a seraphim that came and took tongs uh, and went to the altar and took some coals of fire. And the fire touched his lips because Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Well, the fire from off that altar was to be a symbol of cleansing for Isaiah. And that's what the seraphim told him, uh, that he was cleansed by that fire. And so here at Pentecost comes this demonstration of the power of God and the cleansing of God. And then the Holy Spirit gives them utterance. Now there were, living, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered. And why were they bewildered? They were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. That is, the native tongue in which he was born. He was hearing. And they were amazed and marveled. Why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? The Galileans were notorious rustics. That's just another word for hicks. They were country bumpkins. What were they doing being able to speak all of these languages? And so they were amazed at this. How is it that we hear each of them in our own language to which we were born? Parthia. You know where Parthia was? The Ayatollah lived there. <laughs> That's Iran. The Medes. That's another section of Iran. You remember all of those people had been carried away years, 800 years before, In uh, part of the children of Israel had been carried away into captivity. Well, they come back for this festival of uh, Pentecost. Uh, that time of the year lent itself to travel, and so they could get there for this. And they were there. Uh, people as far away, 1,200 miles away to Iran. Uh, Elamites, that's Iraq. Residents of Mesopotamia. Uh, Cappadocia, that's Syrian Lebanon. Uh, these uh, Pontus is Turkey. Asia is a part of Turkey, uh, Pamphylia, Egypt we all know, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from as far away as Rome, 1,400 miles. Both Jews and proselytes, that's people who had been converted uh, to Jehovah, uh, to the God of Israel, and who would have some knowledge of the scriptures and would be interested in what is about uh, to happen here. They continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? What does this mean? Now, what's the message going to be for the whole world? Now, there's always mockers. There were some people mocking, saying, They are full of sweet wine. They couldn't understand what was taking place, so they said they were drunk. But Peter, you know, I I really am glad that he did this. Peter began his sermon with a joke. Sometimes I get criticized for my humor. It's probably because it's not funny. But, uh, but uh, they, they started off... Uh, uh, the people were critical. They said they're full of new, new wine or sweet wine. They're, they're drunk. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice, and he declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem... Let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk. They started off talking about it, so he picks up on what they've said. He's a good communicator. They're not drunk, as you suppose. And his joke is, it's only the third hour of the day. It's just nine o'clock in the morning. The bars aren't even open. Uh, How could they be drunk? Besides that, they weren't supposed to be drinking at this time. But this is what they were spoken, this was what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It's interesting, he cites Joel twice. Uh, he cites the Psalms, I believe, four times in this sermon. And Luke, by the way, is the one who is recording this for us, and he has greatly compressed this sermon. Uh, It shall be in the last days. Now, people always come to me and they say, Do you believe that we are living in the last days? Always tell them yes. Because they started right here. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth My Spirit upon all mankind. Now, what does He mean, I will pour forth My Spirit upon all mankind? Does that mean all mankind is going to take His Spirit? No, 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 a thousand times no. But it means that all mankind is going to be eligible, that He's not going to make any distinction whether it's a son or a daughter, that He's not going to make any distinction whether it's a young man or an old man, that He's not going to make any distinction because it's a bond, a slave, or a person of some great social status. But anyone who wishes Ho, oh, everyone that is thirsty. Here's where you can drink. You can drink the water of the Holy Spirit. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. I will in those days pour forth My Spirit, and they shall prophesy, that is, they shall speak My message. And that's what they've been doing ever since. Each one of us is to do the same thing, to speak out. The word prophecy here does not necessarily connote some vision of some prophecy, but that you and I are to speak out the message of God. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath and blood and fire and vapor of smoke. I suppose Jimmy Carter felt a little bit that way when he looked at the volcano out in uh, Washington State last week. Uh, Times of Revolution... I remember Miss Isabel Arnold, who was one of the people responsible for this little prayer room out here. Uh, I visited her once when she was almost 90 years of age. And she gave me a verse of Scripture that no one had ever called to my attention before. And it was from Ezekiel. And do you know what the verse was? She was thinking, she was reading the newspaper. She was a, oh my, what a wonderful saint. She knew her Bible, and she read the New York Times and she was, uh, uh, she was reading the New York Times and, and reading her Bible, and she said to me, she was reading about revolution, and she said, you know, right here in Ezekiel it says, I will overturn, I will overturn, I will overturn until him whose right it is to reign shall come. The Lord had given to that old lady a wonderful insight. Revolution after revolution after revolution after revolution until him whose right it is to reign shall come. I will overturn. So there's always been some of this down through the years. And it shall come to be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That means we're eligible to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him, and in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Now, if you have the New American Standard Version, there is a dash right here. You see it? It's right there. It's a dash. You know what that dash means? That dash means that Peter preached about two more hours. That's what it means. Now, I'm not going to preach two more hours, so don't get worried. But this first sermon was not, it takes about 10 minutes to read this second chapter of Acts if you put the intonations in it and so forth. But what he really does, many scholars believe, is that he gives a verbatim account of the Gospel of Mark. Mark was a good friend of Peter's. And it may have been that he inserted the Gospel of Mark, the whole life of Jesus, right at this time. That was the message he brought to the whole world. Uh, Then let me recall something that I think I emphasized at prayer meeting or somewhere last fall that I'd picked up from someone else. Uh, There is a man by the name of Alec McCune who uh, is a great actor. He wanted desperately to perform something that would be different. What all actors like to be able to do is to come forward on some platform and just stand in front of uh, the audience and hold them spellbound for two and a half hours just by speaking. And with no props and with no other supporting cast, just themselves. Someone had done Mark Twain, someone had done Harry Truman. And so Alec McCune from England was looking for something that he could do And finally, he decided that he would try to do something from the Bible. And then it occurred to him that the Gospel according to Mark was the shortest of the four records of the life of Jesus. And so, Alec McCune committed to memory the King James Version of the Gospel according to Mark. He did not add one word, he did not take one word away took him six months to do it. I wonder how many of us have even sat down at one time to read through the Gospel of Mark. But Time Magazine last year said that one of the ten top experiences on Broadway was to hear Alec McEwen give his presentation of the Gospel of Mark. Well, the Holy Spirit, I think, must have done something like this with uh, the Apostle Peter, on that day at Pentecost. Because he gave this tremendous life of Christ. And when he had finished uh, this tremendous sermon, citing quotations from the Old Testament that had been fulfilled, Psalm 16 is cited there. And by the way, the Psalms are cited more than any other book in the Old Testament in the New Testament. Uh, When he finished this, Peter wants them to come into a knowledge of the Savior. He tells them all about the life of Jesus, and he wants them to know the Lord Jesus. He speaks of his deliverance, and they respond. They say, what must I do to be saved? Now, when they had heard this, they were pierced. That is, when they had heard this long sermon of Peter's on the life of Jesus. They were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? The gospel always calls for a response. There's something that we must do. If this is true, that God has invaded this planet in Jesus Christ and God become man, has dwelt among us and offered himself upon the cross for us and given us a message that's big enough to save the whole wide world if they believe, then it's very important for us to do something. And so they say, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and let each one of you be baptized. Repent means to have a changed mind. Metanoia is a changed mind, reoriented, a new set of values. Repent, and then be baptized. That is, you become identified with this Jesus of whom He has been preaching. You become a part. Of that body. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will then bind you to God, bind you to Christ, fill you so that your life is lived out to his glory. My time is gone, and I want to just say a couple more things. Jesus said when he was going away, I will send another. Another teacher, one who will be called to come alongside. And when I think about this, the best illustration I know of the work of the Holy Spirit in coming into your life and into my life. A few years ago, I worked as a researcher, some uh, 20 years ago, as a researcher, and I used to cut out things from newspapers and uh, put them out. And I remember reading the Washington Post when Helen Keller died. It was a long account of her life uh, in the obituary column. Incredible. Uh, Woman, You know about Helen Keller, born in Alabama. Her father was a newspaper editor, publisher. She was, because of some fever and disease, brought into a world blind and deaf. And I don't like the word, but dumb because she had no way to learn. Like a little animal caged and full of rage because she could not communicate. And then her wise father, through contacting someone in Boston who had to do with Alexander Graham Bell and a wonderful teacher by the name of Ann Sullivan, brought Miss Sullivan to Alabama. And Miss Sullivan started to teach Helen Keller by touch. She could not see, she could not hear, but she could feel. And on a cold March day when Miss Sullivan was trying to establish rapport with this little child that was so difficult and so blocked off from everything, while Ann Sullivan was working the pump to pump some water. Some of the cold water splashed out on the little blind girl's hand and she put her hand back. And Ann Sullivan, in a flash of inspiration, grabbed her fingers and put them to her lips and said, Water, water, water. And the little girl tried to gurgle out the words, Wawa, water. This broke the communication barrier and she learned a word that that cold, wet substance was water. And then a whole world began to open up to her through touch. She began to learn. She received a distinguished degree. She was a, There's just no time to tell all of the enormous accomplishments that she made. But now my point is this. Ann Sullivan was much older, of course, and so she died first. And when Ann Sullivan died, Helen Keller said this about her teacher. All the best of me belongs to her. There is not a talent or an inspiration or a joy in me that has not been awakened by her loving touch. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He comes and awakens in us a heart that will be responsive and open to the Lord and gives to us a communication so that we have those fruits of the Spirit that Jean Taglarini read from Galatians 5 that they are to be growing in us, and he is to be teaching us, to be conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, it was our joy to be up at Wheaton College for the commencement service. And after the baccalaureate sermon, uh, after church on Sunday morning, we went to the home of one of our son's professors, Dr. Gerald Hawthorne. Dr. Hawthorne's wife is the sister of Jim Elliot, the missionary who was killed in Ecuador by the Alca Indians. Her mother was there visiting from Portland, Oregon, with her older brother, three years older than Jim Elliot, who is himself a missionary to Peru. The mother is a godly, they're all just wonderful, godly people, but that sweet old lady really got to me. You could see something of the features in her face of the photographs that I've seen of Jim Elliot, who was martyred when he was only 28 years of age and who as a college boy had written, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose and whose life has been the inspiration of so many thousands of young people going into uh, missionary service. And when you walk across that campus and you see Elliot Hall, McCullough Field, St. Hall, you can see that there was no waste made there. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And God used that marvelously. And I said to this precious, precious mother, Your son's wife touched my life at a point in my ministry that deeply moved me to want to be a better Christian. And she said to me that she was thankful for what the Lord had done through Jim. But what he has done is only what any Christian ought to do because the Lord loved us all so much. And you could see that marvelous faith and how it came. In that afternoon, when I saw the uh, president of the college walk across the platform at this jam-packed auditorium with not one shred of paper and just a microphone in front of him, speak to the graduating students, an incredible message of challenge, urging them to live 100% for Jesus Christ. Seeing John Perkins, that black man from Jackson, Mississippi, who has been persecuted because of his faith in Jesus, but has responded with a radio broadcast called The Voice of Calvary, who has returned love for hatred, given an honorary degree. Sir Norman Anderson from Trinity College in Cambridge, Speaking to the students of the resurrection of Jesus and of the life of a Christian. Dr. Armading, at the close of his address, said that it had become a tradition for their students, about 500 of them graduating, to sing a hymn. And he said the students will sing the first three stanzas and then all of us will join in singing the last three stanzas. And the work of the Holy Spirit has come to give us the mind of Christ. That's what I want us to close this Pentecost service with today. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by His love and power controlling all I do and say. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour so that all may see I triumph only through His power. May the peace of God my Father rule my life in everything, that I may be calm to comfort sick and sorrow. Let us bow in prayer. O God our Father, we bless you for Pentecost, and for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and for the blessed life of our Lord Jesus. And we pray that you will bind us to him this day, and if anyone here does not know him as Lord and Savior, may they know that no one can say that Jesus is Lord and mean it, except by the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit prompts someone to that, make them to know that him that cometh unto Jesus he will in no wise cast out, and that to as many as will receive him, to them, He gives power to become sons of God. And so, Father, bless us with the things which we have heard, that now they may be more than words, but that they may be translated into deeds that will show the love of Jesus. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our Teacher, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.